Hi. Uh, before I get started, let's um, just pray um, for me and for you guys. Um, please join me in prayer now. Dear Father, please help me to be faithful to your word now. Please help me to put away uh, any notions of communicating a new message or something cool or clever for my own glory. I only want to speak what you have already communicated. Please help me to do that now and to rely only on you and not on myself for strength. Please help me to speak clearly and plainly. And please help us all, myself included, to listen and be touched by the message of your gospel, which is shocking, powerful, and unlike anything else. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. So um, I picked a very familiar passage today, um, the parable, uh, the so-called parable of the prodigal son. And one of the reasons I chose this passage um, is because it is so famous, because um, I'm just a guest speaker. Um, this isn't part of a series, and we have to jump right into text, so might as well choose something you're familiar with. Um, so like I said, in the category of familiar passages, the parable of the prodigal son uh, is hard to beat. Um, this passage has actually affected our language. I did a, a quick survey which involved me looking around and asking whoever was there uh, what the word prodigal means. Um, I got answers like uh, lost, uh, someone that wanders off, someone who goes away and comes back again, someone who is forgiven, stuff like that. So people hear the word prodigal and they immediately think of the character of the younger brother in this passage. Despite the word actually meaning wastefully or recklessly extravagant. That's its meaning. Um, so that's how well-known this passage is. But on the other hand, it's um, not really well-known by a lot of people at all. And the fact that they, they think they know it um, causes them to overlook its true message. So this is why it's important to look at the text for yourself. And when you do look at the parable for yourself, you see that Jesus doesn't say, there was a man with a prodigal son, or there was a nice man with a bad son. Jesus says there was a man who had two sons. And what we're going to do this evening is look at that man, and we're going to look at both of the sons, not just one of them. So context is vital when it comes to studying the Bible. Without context, you end up with all kinds of crazy interpretations and very important facts can be overlooked. And that's why Christoph read the first two verses of this chapter as well. They tell us who was with Jesus at the time he told this parable, and they tell us who he told the parable to. It gives us context for the parable. So let's go through the parable and look at the actual text. We'll look at both sons, and through his interaction with each son, we'll also have a good look at the father, a much-neglected character in all of this. We'll start with the younger son. The younger son is the one we obviously identify with, the sinner. He goes off and wastefully and recklessly spends his money on prostitutes and partying and ends up feeding pigs for a living while he starves. To the Pharisees and scribes that Jesus was telling the story to, the younger son would have been the most disgusting and impure character to modern audiences like us, this guy has obviously hit a low point, but imagine being a Pharisee. 
The younger son had defiled himself with sexual immorality and reckless living. And to top things off, in desperation, he gets the disgusting job of tending to pigs, unclean animals in the eyes of the Jews. Not only does he have to feed them, but he is so low he actually ends up eyeing up their food because he is so hungry. This son has fallen so low that he ends up envying animals, and not just any animals either, unclean animals, animals that Pharisees wouldn't even touch. He is below them. And this all starts with a request from the younger son asking his father for his inheritance now. For the younger son to ask his father this while he is still alive is like saying, I wish you were dead. Just give me what's coming to me. The younger son has just let his father know that he only values him for what he can inherit from his death. The younger son doesn't value his father or a relationship with him at all. He merely sees him as a means to an end. And he would rather have that now instead of having to wait for it. And this is where we get our first look at what type of a father this father is. We're simply told in verse 12 that this man divided up his property between his two sons in response to this request. Now, I can't imagine how much it must hurt to be told by your child in such a cold manner that they don't care about you at all, only what they can get out of you. And for all they care, you might as well be dead. The expected response among Jesus' audience would have been for this man to drive his disrespectful son out of the house defending his honor and be done with him. He would have been well within his rights, but he doesn't. The father takes the insult on the chin and lets the younger son have what he wants. He divides up his property. Now this would have involved public sale and everyone locally would have known about how this man was selling his valuable land and by doing so reducing his standing in in the society and influence among his people. This father lets the younger son have what he wants even though it must have meant great heartache for him as well as public scandal. The father loved his son far more than he valued his land or his public image and standing in the community. His son was far more important to him than his pride. But it's like this younger son doesn't see his father at all, only the money he can get out of him. This father is just a means to an end for this son, so he rejects the father and tries to get what he thinks is really important right now. He just doesn't get it. He doesn't see the loving father that has raised him and gives him everything that he has. This is one way to avoid God. This way rejects a relationship with our Father. It ignores him and tries to find happiness in the indulgence of our desires. This way turns away from the Father and in toward the self. A lot of people have told me there is no God. It was something I proudly proclaimed myself a few years ago. But you'll notice with these people that they don't say it like it's bad news. They say it like it's something good. 
They don't say, look, I'm really sorry to have to break this to the world, but I've done the maths and there, there is no God. This is it. There is no loving Father, no greater purpose. This is it. I'm really sorry. But this world, this life, that's all there is. You, me, and everyone that we love is nothing more than a collection of cells. And when we die, we're nothing more than food for worms. They don't sound sad to be delivering their message. They sound happy, almost smug. They treat belief in God like some sort of primitive or cowardly escape from reality. Can you bring up the first slide, please? The uh, young man with the unfortunate hairstyle is Blaise Pascal. Uh, I first heard of Blaise Pascal when I was 17 and studying software development in college. Um, Pascal lived during the 17th century, and he was a person of staggering genius right from childhood. A proper genius, not like you know, a really clever person or someone that wins mastermind, but someone who scares you, they're so smart, or someone that changes the world. Uh, that's what he did. Um, he was a mathematician, scientist, and a devout Christian theologian and philosopher. Pascal was around when people first began uh, to dismiss Christianity and, and the belief that there is more than this world as primitive and backwards. He was around when that first became fashionable. And here's what he had to say about those people. Do they profess to have delighted us by telling us that they hold our soul to be only a little wind and smoke, especially by telling us this in a haughty and self-satisfied tone of voice? Is this a thing to say gaily? Is it not, on the contrary, a thing to say sadly, as the saddest thing in the world? If you fast forward to the modern day, an organization of atheists have paid to have these ads displayed on the sides of buses. They say, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. These people, I guess they're entitled to say what they want, they paid for the ad, but they've just told me that my father is dead. Indeed, that he never lived at all. But does that sound like someone breaking bad news to you? These people can only say these things and believe these things so happily because, like the younger son who asked for his inheritance straight away as if his father was already dead, they never knew the father at all. That's how they can accept it so easily, so happily. The younger sons of this world look at the Christian faith and they don't see a relationship with God. They see rules and religion, and so they reject it. They try to find joy and meaning for their life, spending their inheritance, indulging their pleasures, and pursuing self-discovery. The younger son in this story has confused his loving father with a harsh taskmaster. He thinks he is achieving independence when he is really just getting more and more lost away from his dad. Eventually, he hits rock bottom and comes to his senses. He still doesn't see his father for the loving father he is, but he's going to try to appeal to his mercy and earn his way back. And then we meet the elder son. He's not happy to see his brother come home. He won't come into the party. 
but instead stands outside causing a scene. The elder son is standing on the outside rejecting this party, rejecting his brother and ultimately rejecting his father, the host, and forcing him to leave the ceremonies publicly and come out to reason with his stubborn son. Again, showing that he has more concern for his sons than he has for his own appearance, the father gets up from the feast to plead with him to come in. And when the elder son speaks to his father, we can see how angry he is. I wonder if you noticed he's quite disrespectful in his speech. He addresses his father not as father or dad or even sir. He just says, look. He criticizes his father's choices. And he won't even acknowledge that the younger son is his brother. He says, this son of yours, your mess, not my brother. The elder son, just like the younger one, saw his father as merely a means to an end. But he thought himself up to the task of earning that. This is the approach of religious people. Through hard work, discipline, self-denial, and religious observance, they think they can put God in their debt so that they somehow have earned their place in the family and he owes them a good life. When things don't go according to their plan, many religious people end up, like the elder son, standing outside the party, fuming with anger because God hasn't delivered on his end of the deal. Grace rubs these people up the wrong way. They like to think they somehow deserve their blessings. And when they see someone who they judge as unworthy, enjoying the grace of God, they get angry, just like the elder son did when his brother came home. Both of these sons got it wrong when it came to their father. Neither of them knew their dad, and each one of them had their own way of avoiding him. The younger son avoided his dad by running away and indulging himself. The older son avoided his father through hard work. Neither of them treated their dad like a dad. Neither of them had a good relationship with their father. Both these sons saw their father as just a means to an end. The difference between the two sons is that one of them just happened to be good with rules and hard work and the other didn't. One decided to cut to the chase and get his inheritance there and then. The other decided he could earn it. Neither of them actually wanted to know their father at all. One was comfortable with a taskmaster, the other one wasn't. They both got it wrong, though. In this parable, Jesus sums up the two ways that people go about avoiding God. One way is irreligion, and the other is religion. One way is all about pleasure and pursuing your own desires, just be happy. And the other is all about discipline and earning your own way. Both are wrong, and both lead to alienation from the Father. This slide, I don't know how long it's been up there. Um, I'll have to explain it. It's a big mess of words. Um, basically, there's a website uh, where you can input any text. It filters out the common words like and and the, and it takes what's left and it calculates the amount of times 
a word appears in the passage that you've just given it. And uh, if a word appears a lot of times, it makes it big. And if it doesn't appear that much, it stays small. Um, this um, cloud of words here is what I got when I fed in the prodigal son. And um, it's a good representation of who the much-neglected character in this parable is. You see, the largest word here is the word father because it occurs so often throughout the passage. And yet we think, bad son, that's all we think about. Um, throughout this parable, we get a look at what kind of father these young men have, and we can see they've both got him wrong. We can see what the father is like in the way he deals with both of his sons. The younger son deeply insults and uses the father to get what he wants. But the father keeps loving him. And when he returns, he welcomes him back. He runs to him from far off and doesn't even, finish, doesn't even let him finish his little speech before he's embracing him and kissing him and arranging a party to celebrate. We can see that this father loves his son far more than he is concerned for his own appearance. He runs out to him instead of waiting for him to come groveling. If you were a grown man, the head of a household in that society, you simply didn't run. Running was for children and young men. Running meant hitching up your robe and bearing your legs. You looked silly. He doesn't care, though. His son is back. He'll have no talk of working off debts or treating his son like a servant either. He lavishes affection on him and rejoices, giving him the best robe, which would, no doubt, which would no doubt be his own robe, to cover his rags. The father even kills the fattened calf to celebrate, throwing the best party he could throw. That's how great his joy is that his son has come back to, to him. And that's a glimpse at how happy God is when sinners come to repentance. Now, when it comes to the elder son, the father once more bears the insult in love, leaving the party to come out to his son, taking his son's rebuke and still reaching out to him in love, reminding him of what a good thing it is that his brother has come home. Now, the story ends there. Jesus leaves it open-ended. And when we look at his audience, we can see why. Go back to verse 2 and see the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees. They were not happy that Jesus was accepting sinners and even eating with them. They were standing outside the party fuming. It was this grumbling that provoked Jesus to tell the three parables in this chapter. And the scribes and Pharisees are the ones these parables are addressed to. And they are represented in this third parable by the elder son. Jesus, using this parable, shows us the two ways people go about avoiding a real relationship with God. There is a third way, however, a way that acknowledges the Father and enjoys relationship with him. This third way is neither irreligion nor religion, and it is not a compromise between the two either. This is the true way of the gospel, and it is unlike any religion Back in um, 
the early church. Um, Romans called the early Christians atheists because they couldn't figure it out. They were un- it was unlike any religion at the time. They didn't have idols. They didn't have to um, offer sacrifices. So when they sent their spies to see what are these Christians are about, they came back saying, well, they're atheists. They don't have any gods. Couldn't see any statues. Didn't perform any sacrifices. Christianity is unlike anything else. This is the way that Jesus offers, the way of the cross. Christianity is not about hedonism or ignoring God altogether, but it is also not about religiously working to keep God in your debt and climb some sort of social ladder so you can look down on other people. Unfortunately, though, the latter is how Christianity has come off to a lot of people because many churches are full of people like the elder brother in this story. They're good with rules, and that is their method of avoiding God. They're comfortable with order and earning their own way. They don't try and get past the rules to their father. That's part of the reason so many younger brother type people walk away from the faith. Christianity is not about slaving away in the field. It is about coming into the party that your father is throwing. Christianity is not a matter of earning God's love. We cannot earn such a wonderful thing. On the cross, our true elder brother, Jesus, atoned for our sins and paid the price to bring us back to our father. Unlike the elder brother in this story, Jesus hasn't stayed at home looking after himself and his own inheritance. He has gone into the far country looking for us to rescue us from our sins and bring us home. Now, trusting, <coughs> trusting in Jesus, we stand as children of, of God, not as a result of our own good deeds, but as a result of God's own work to redeem us. If you're looking for a social ladder to climb, a way to earn God's blessings, a way to save yourself, Christianity doesn't offer that. It offers a saviour. It offers grace. It offers a father. When you read this story, which brother do you identify with most? Do you need to realise, like the younger brother, that God offers you himself as a father who loves you and wants you to come home from the far country and know him? Do you need to realise like the elder brother, that you cannot earn God's blessings and that he offers you himself not as a boss, but as a father who loves you and wants you to come home from the fields and into the party. Is God a means to an end for you? Or do you see your loving father for what he really is? Is God the end in himself? Is it all about your father? Jesus uh, left the parable open-ended, so I'm going to leave that open-ended on a question. Um, So please join me in prayer now.